But we're going to get into our message today. And if you've been here um, since the beginning of the year, you know that we are now in week four of our series called Words Matter. Um, So we're making our way through this. We have a a lot to get into, and so plenty of work to be done still. Um, But hopefully you have been learning some things, applying some things, having some fun with this. And so what we've said from the beginning for those that maybe haven't been here, is this series is all about us better understanding spiritual language, which is really to say uh, better understanding who God is, who we are in, in response to that, and ultimately what he is up to in and through us. Like this stuff is really that imperative for us to understand. And so the approach that we have been taking is we are taking singular concepts and we're spending an entire message breaking that down, unpacking that, seeing what that actually means for our lives and our perspectives. And so what we've done up to this point is we've gone through the word love, the word faith, the word neighbor, just breaking breaking it apart and really determining what do these things mean and how can we play them out in our lives. And so I genuinely hope that you have continued down the path with these things, that you have continued to challenge yourself in these areas as you're reading through scripture, as you're applying them to your lives, like really continue to challenge yourself because sometimes it, it takes some time to really change our perspective of these things. And so I will encourage you in that. But we're gonna go ahead and turn the page into today's message. And I'll tell you up front. Um, I'm going to kind of work my way through this pretty quick. It's going to be kind of a shorter message because we're going to take communion at the end of this. And so I want to provide plenty of space and time for us to reflect and meditate and enter into those things. And so no time to waste. Uh, Let's jump right into this. And so before we get into our word, I want to lay before you just one qualifier that I think is really going to help shape and form how we understand this concept in its original context. Context, okay? And so whenever you're studying any sort of language, that could be modern day, historical, biblical, non-biblical, whenever you're doing this, there are certain rules, they call them laws of linguistics, that you have to follow, okay? And one of the main rules is that there are two facets to understanding any given concept in any given language, okay? Two things. First off, what a word means within the language And number two, how it's used within the language, okay? So whenever you're studying these things, you can't just simply look at a definition or a meaning and then call it a day. You also have to study the way in which the communicators are using it. So let me give you an example in our English language of how this might work. And there are many different examples, but here is a quick and easy one, and that is the word cool, C-O-O-L, a very common word within our modern day lexicon. Now, if you go to Google and you search the word cool, you will see two primary definitions attached to that. Number one will be some variation of a low temperature, right? In other words, to be cold, to be cool, that is the first sense that you will see. The second one is to be calm or to be tranquil. That is calm, cool, and collected, right? That sense of the word. Those are the two primary meanings that you will see. However, if you and I were having a conversation, and maybe you were telling me about this this really neat thing that you've experienced lately, I might respond, wow, that's cool. 
And in that context, I'm communicating something very different from those primary meanings or definitions. You can imagine like hundreds or thousands of years from now, somebody coming back and studying the English language and maybe seeing this situation on paper, and and they might be thinking, you know, I don't think he means a low temperature. I don't think he means tranquility. Like, what is he trying to communicate through this word? And so they'd have to dig in and figure out contextually what is going on. This very much applies to our biblical languages. There are often words that will have direct meanings or definitions, but it's different in the way in which the writer is using it. And this is one of the best examples we have today. There is a common everyday use of this word that you will see in their context, but it's beginning to be used in a new and powerful way. And so I think that will frame us up nicely. So the fourth word of our Words Matter series is the word Christ. All right. The word Christ. This is what I want to dig into. This is what I want to unpack today. And as I often do at this point in the message, I would encourage you to take notes, do whatever it takes to retain this information. If I'm getting up here each week and I'm talking to you guys for a few minutes and then you leave without having retained any of this, it's a huge waste of my time. And I don't want to do that. So please continue to to, to challenge yourself in these areas. Grow, allow it to land on good soil because that's what we need to do. Now, as you can imagine, and you probably would have guessed, the word Christ is a very popular word within our biblical narrative, right? And in fact, it's used well over 500 times within our New Testament, which is really to say it's one of the most common words that we see throughout these writings. In fact, it's interesting It's so common that some theologians over the course of time have actually argued that maybe this word really didn't mean that much to the biblical writers, and especially Paul. Like, maybe it didn't mean that that much. They're throwing it out there constantly, so it must not have been very significant to them. And interestingly, because of that thought process, over the course of centuries and centuries, we have gotten to this point today where we treat this word very lightly. In fact, typically we think that this is simply a name, right? Jesus Christ, that is his name. And naturally, without even thinking twice, we'll think first name, last name, right? Jesus' first name, Christ's last name, let's move on with our day. And so we've gotten to this point now where, well, this word doesn't mean that much. It's not very significant to us. But the truth is, the biblical writers didn't use this as often as they did because it didn't mean anything to them. Rather, they used it as much as they did because that's how central it was to everything they were writing about, talking about, working for, striving for. That's why we see this so often. And so while there were certainly times that this was used to simply refer to the person of Jesus, the vast majority of the time, there is something much, much deeper going on within the language that we need to take notice of. In fact, before we even begin to break down what this word means, I want to show you some clear distinctions that we see of this in our scriptures. This was clearly not just a name to these people. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. We read this, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So we see John here making a clear distinction between the name Jesus and whatever this word Christ means, right? There's a clear distinction. We see the same thing in John 20, verse 31. We read, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Same exact distinction in place. Maybe the best example we have of this 
is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Starting in verse 13, we see a really interesting conversation taking place between Jesus and some of his closest followers. And this is where we pick up. It says, when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Now, why is this a significant example of what we're talking about today? Well, because at this point in history, at this point in the gospel narrative, the disciples have been with Jesus for years. About two years, they have spent time with him. And so for two years, they have known him as Jesus. That's who he was. That's what his name was. But then to take the next step and to call this man Christ was something completely different. That wasn't just a name to them. That was a proclamation of something and one that we very much need to be aware of. So let's begin to dig into this, see what we can learn and apply. And so let's start with the Greek word that we're working with here. We often like to start here because this is because the original language, right? So Christ in the Greek is the word Christos. We'll put this on the screen for you if you want to write that down and maybe study that a little bit. You can obviously see the immediate connection between the Greek and the English of this. And Christos was a somewhat common word in the the first century language and context, both inside and outside of religious circles. So there was an everyday use of this to some extent. So going back to our qualifier, There was a clear meaning of this word in the language, but then upon the arrival of Jesus, it began to be used in a new way. And primarily what they began to do is they began to use it as a noun, which was not universally how this word would have been used or understood. In fact, this caused a lot of confusion with Greek historians in the early centuries because that's just not how they understood this word to work. And so at times they would actually use a derivative of Christos to explain who Jesus was because using that word as a noun just didn't right size in their brain. It just didn't make sense to them. So we see some very interesting things historically with this concept. Now, let's talk about the different ways that they would have understood this word. What did this mean to them? And you'll see very clearly that it very much depended on the context, okay? So first and foremost, when they heard the word Christos, the first thing they're probably going to think of is the word anointed, all right? The word anointed. Now, um, that has several different meanings and, and applications, but the primary meaning of that is to assign somebody to, to a task, to a function, or to a position, all right? Now, that could apply to many different things, even biblically, that applies to many different things, but most often, that applied to kingship. In other words, to anoint somebody to be king, to anoint somebody to be a ruler of a domain, that's most likely how they would have understood the word Christos. Interestingly enough, if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 
So let me explain that real quick. Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but like by the time of Jesus, it had been translated into the Greek language for the Greek people, just like today it has happened in English. They call this the Septuagint. If you've ever heard that, that's what it's referring to. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Christos is used over 40 times. Okay, which isn't a ton, but it's still a relevant amount. Nearly every time it's used, it's translated in English today as anointed. And nearly every time it's used, it's in that context of appointing somebody to a certain position or to a certain function. So if you think in the Old Testament about the high priest, Think about the kings of Israel or Judah. Interestingly enough, King Cyrus of Persia, it says that these folks were anointed into these positions or into these offices. And so again, this is very much how they would have understood this concept to work. Now, the only other way that Christos was used or that it would have been understood in this day and age is through the word Messiah. All right, the word Messiah. And in fact, um, if you're talking about Jewish ears who were listening or eyes who were reading, this is most likely how they would have translated that word. In fact, we go to John chapter 1, verse 41. Speaking of Andrew, it says, He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So you see immediately through the Jewish eyes what this would have meant to them. So anointed Messiah, these are the two things that most likely would have been understood through the concept of Christos. Now, at this point, you might be saying to yourself, all right, that's that's cool. That sounds good. Let's apply that to the person of Jesus and we can move on, right? But the reality is attaching this concept to a person in the first century context was monumental, And I mean monumental. In fact, it was like a verbal bomb going off in the minds of the people because it had huge religious and political implications, huge ones. And so let me explain to you what was going on during this day and age so you can see how this works. If we start in that kind of political sphere of things, we've talked a little bit about this before, but if you know your history, at the time of Jesus, The Roman Empire was the clear superpower, right? They were large, they were in charge, and so Caesar is king, and their influence was secure. In fact, at the time of Jesus, Rome was nearly at the height of its historical reign, okay? So it ruled over 20% of the known world. It occupied everything from Western Europe all the way through the Middle East. I mean, they had a huge amount of power and influence. And let's just say they were really good at knowing how to both expand and retain their reign. They were very, very good at this. They were quick to stomp out any sort of revolts or any sort of conspirators. I mean, they knew how to deal with these people. I mentioned the word apostle a few weeks ago. They had very talented apostles who would travel and conquer new lands and apply the influence and the customs of Rome. I mean, they were constantly expanding their power and their influence. And so think about this. When someone shows up on the scene in the early first century, in the eastern part of their domain, claiming to be Christos, a.k.a. the anointed and appointed king, well, we got a big problem on our hands, right? We we got a bit of an issue here. And on top of that, there's a growing number of people who are beginning to proclaim the same thing about this particular individual. They're saying, Caesar is not my king. Jesus is my king. This is the one I'm with. This is the one who I ultimately am to obey. 
This harkens us back to a few weeks ago, we talked about faith, how a huge key to faith is this idea of allegiance, right? And this is what these people are saying. My allegiance, my loyalty is first and foremost with Christ. Now I'll be a good citizen, right? I'm I'm out for the common good. That doesn't change anything, but I'm ultimately aligning myself with this king and his name is Jesus, okay? Now you have to understand that had huge implications for their lives, the lives of their families, the lives of their friends. And so we need to very much understand the significance. Now, if we jump over to the religious side of things, we have to go back to the word Messiah, okay? Now, the word Messiah, truthfully, was a pretty loaded word um, at this particular time in history. It was actually a lot more complicated than we make it out to be today, which is to say that first century Jews had a lot of different takes, a lot of different opinions on Messiah. But there was at least a general consensus based off of what the scriptures provided. The prophecies that were laid forth, they at least had some sort of framework. And so I want to lay this before you because it's important. So when they thought about the Messiah, there were four main things that that ultimately represented. Number one, he was going to be God's representative on earth. Number two, he would establish God's kingdom across the world. Number three, he would mediate salvation for the people And number four, he would deliver Israel from its enemies. These are like the four primary tenets of who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to accomplish. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, here's the thing. That's great. That's, That's awesome. That's lovely. Let's go forward with that. But here is the problem. Over the course of centuries, this began to elicit visions of grandeur for the Jewish people. In other words, as these prophecies were passed down and spoken of for generation to generation to generation, the expectations and the visions got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, the Messiah to them was going to be this mighty warrior who was going to fight and vanquish all of their enemies, right? He was going to be somebody who was a kingly figure that would come into power and bring justice to the ends of the earth. He was going to be somebody with great status and honor that would come into influence and would change the course of history. Like they had these huge, huge visions of who this was going to be. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, this kid from Galilee, born in a manger, son of a carpenter of lowly means and status, well, yeah, that ain't our guy, right? This is not who we were anticipating. This is not who we have been waiting for, which means we have a blasphemer among us. And yet again, we have a big problem on our hands. And so here's the truth of the matter. Listen closely. If we were to plant ourselves in the the Middle East at this particular time in history, what we would very quickly come to realize is that declaring Jesus is Christ, he is the king, he is the Messiah, was not just a careless throw out of a name. It was a proclamation and a proclamation that had severe consequences attached to it. Think about it. You're simultaneously offending the two most influential powers in this day and age. On the one hand, you're saying Caesar is not my king. And on the other hand, you're saying I believe in this false Messiah, right? Major, major trouble. And if you read through the passion story closely enough, what you'll come to see is that this is the exact reason they killed him. This is it right here. Let let me show you this starting in Matthew 26. We'll look at it from both angles. Jesus here is, he's dealing with the Jewish leaders at this time. Listen closely to how this goes. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and declared he has blasphemed. 
Why do we still need witnesses? Now you have heard the blasphemy. What is your verdict? They answered, he is guilty and deserves death. Let's look at the other side of things. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. That is the Roman governor. Watch what the Roman governor asks him. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. Verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. If you want to know why this word is so significant, if, if you want to know why we need to begin to grasp the importance of this, this is why, because it was the very reason they killed him. This is it right here. And it makes you wonder, or at least makes me think to myself, how have we ever gotten to the point to where we treat this word so lightly? How have we ever gotten to the point to where we're reading through scripture and we see the word Christ and we move right past it like it doesn't mean anything to us? If you want to know why the biblical writers used it so often, it's because that word meant everything to them. It was a proclamation of their loyalty. It was a proclamation of their identity. It was the difference between life and death. And even that wouldn't stop them from proclaiming, Jesus is the Christ. He is my king. He is my Messiah. That's how significant this is. We have to begin to understand just how important this is. Now, here's the thing with this, okay? That's, that's good and all, and that's important for us to know as we read through this particular context. But the question that I would ask is, yeah, but what does that mean for us today? Like, what does that mean for us in our context? Because at least for us, it's not the difference between life and death, right? Um, it's not gonna send shockwaves through the readers or the listeners of it, right? So, so what can we take from this? And so here's what I would say clearly. While the cost might be different, and while the consequences certainly aren't the same, listen to me, the meaning and the implications remain every bit as important. And that is to say, when we say Christ, we are not simply saying a name. We are declaring that the king is here. That's what we're saying. God's kingdom has come to earth, and our king, our ruler, has arrived. That's what we are saying. In fact, as you read through the New Testament, Pay close attention to how often it speaks of Christ specifically in this way as our king. Think about it. It says that we are servants of Christ. It says that we are soldiers of Christ. It says we are ambassadors for Christ. We are obedient to Christ. Think about all the times it says that we are in Christ. In other words, we are united. We're aligned with him. When we say Christ, we are saying you are our ruler, our master, our king. This is what we are declaring. But not only that, what we're also declaring, and this is a huge, huge statement, is that the Messiah has come. That's what we're declaring through this word. I, I mentioned this briefly a moment ago, but the clearest understanding of Messiah to the Jewish people is that he was going to be a deliverer. He was going to be a savior. And that's exactly what we're saying. Our deliverer, our restorer has come. Again, as you read through the New Testament, pay close attention to how it speaks of Christ in this way. It says we're saved by Christ. It says we have peace through Christ. It says we are free in Christ. We are justified by Christ. We are redeemed. We are sanctified. We are glorified. All of these are pointing to him as Messiah, which is to say he is our savior. He is our healer. He is our conqueror. He is our restorer. This is what we are Declaring, we have to begin to get our hands around what this really means. By the way, the phrase we often say, calling Jesus Lord and Savior of our lives, is a direct tie to the word Christos. He is our Lord. In other words, he is our King, and he is our Savior. He's the Messiah, the one that has come to deliver his people. 
that's how big this is. That's how significant this is. That's how much we need to change our perspective of what this means for us, which means we, we need to stop overlooking this. We need to stop reading right past this. In fact, here's what I would encourage you to do. The next time you're reading through scripture, if this is what helps you, when you see Christ, translate that to Messiah or, or translate that to king in your mind and just see if that doesn't kind of flip a switch in how you understand these things. In fact, this week, this week, do this. Go read through a, a part of one of the gospels or go, go read through a part of, of Romans. And every time you see the word Christ, stop and think to yourself about the significance behind it. You will be blown away at how much more this speaks to you, how much more this means to us than it certainly does today. We have to get hold of this if we're gonna apply it to our lives. Now, here's the thing. I'm gonna end this way. I wanna go back to something I mentioned just a moment ago. Um, and it might sidetrack us for just a second but I think it's important for our perspective. And that is, you do still know that, that there are places in the world where the cost of this word is the same that it once was. You do know that. I know we live in, in comfy, nice West here. But if you call Jesus Christ in certain parts of the Middle East, Northern Africa, even parts into Asia, there are severe consequences. I'm talking about violence, incarceration, your possessions getting taken away, your family often stripped right from under your arms. That's easy to say. Can you imagine that? Your family stripped right from under your arms. People are still dying today for the sake of Christ. In fact, recent numbers show 260 million Christians worldwide are still experiencing severe persecution for their faith, which is to say violence, incarceration, and death. Just let that settle in for a moment. See, it's really easy for us here in the West to look right over that word Christ. It doesn't mean anything to us while people are dying on the other part of the world. This holds every bit the significance that it once did. Every bit of the weight that it once held still remains today. Now listen, I know that we live in a different context. I get it. And so, so we don't have to put our lives on the line in a physical way. What we can do and what we must do is put our lives on the line in a spiritual way, which is to say, give him everything we have and declare that he is king of our lives. That is what we must do. Listen, I know, I know how easy it is to, to be a Christian here in America. I know how lukewarm and convenient you can be without having any troubles we can say that we're a Christian and go about doing everything we've ever done in the past. It's easy for us. And that's why this word is so important today because it must grab hold of us. It must shake us up a little bit for us to realize what is really going on, how much bigger, how much more important this really is to us. Jesus died for this. His disciples died for this. There are people today dying for this and it begs the question, what are we doing for the kingdom it begs the question, how far are we willing to go? What are we willing to sacrifice for his kingdom? Guys, this has to wake us up a little bit. Listen, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't pastor, I can't lead a church that is just content to be lukewarm. I just, I, I don't have it in me. 
We can't continue down a path acting as if this is just an accessory to our lives. Guys, we have to wake up and realize what's really going on. The king is here. The Messiah has come. He has saved us. He has delivered us. And the least we can do is put our trust, our hope, and our faith in him.